Right now, though, we want to start by taking another look at a story that has really been in the news the last couple of days. Although it has been in the news the last few months, some are questioning, though, did B.C. and federal politicians pay enough attention to it? It's something that was talked about again earlier today on Mornings with Simi. Two senators from Alaska and the uh, one House of Representatives member wrote to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau way back February the 12th, and they sent a copy of the letter to uh, John Horgan, and they said, look, uh, you're going to shut down our cruise industry for another year because you're closing your ports until February of next year. So they said... Why don't we have a dialogue on this? Let's, we've always uh, talked across the border between Canada and the United States. This is critical for our economy here in Alaska, the cruise ship business. Why don't we talk about this? And there's options. There's other things we could do. And they even mentioned this option of uh, technical stops, which is a way around, a workaround. They got no response, nothing. So that was Vaughn Palmer with the Vancouver Sun speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Barry Penner, legal advisor to Cruise Lines International Association. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome, Jill. Thanks for having me on. When you hear that, and even though there is a phone call set up for today, could this have been avoided? Uh, Quite possibly. Um, The Cruise Line Association has been seeking meetings with uh, both federal and provincial authorities, obviously, since the pandemic hit. Uh, we have been successful in getting a series of meetings in Ottawa, uh, but to date have not received any formal meetings uh, on this topic uh, with the problems of British Columbia, despite the uh, Cruise Association writing a number of times to different ministers. Um, I, I can't explain that, but other than people, I guess, have been focused on the immediate issue of the pandemic, uh, but the association's been trying to plan to the future, and now what we've seen is uh, what uh, Mr. Palmer was describing in the segment you just played. Uh, legislation uh, did just get signed yesterday by President Biden in Washington, D.C., which means that when the cruise ship industry starts, as they're planning to do now uh, later this summer, uh, ships will be sailing from Seattle to Alaska. But for the first time in our memory, we'll not be stopping on uh, at any, Victor- uh, any ports in British Columbia, including Victoria. Uh, this is being called a temporary measure and, again, something done by uh, Alaska to make sure they don't lose out on the full season of the cruise ship season. Uh, is it guaranteed or is is there the possibility of getting the guarantee that it is temporary? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it, it, it's ultimately up to U.S. legislators what they want to do with U.S. legislation. Uh, but what's happened for the first time again in our memory is it's being openly talked about making a, a permanent change so that cruise ships no longer have to call in Canada if they're going between the United States and Alaska. Uh, so that is a very significant change uh, in the political environment in the United States. Uh, and to think about this, it did pass unanimously in the Senate and then in the House of Representatives and then was signed yesterday by President Biden. In order for that to happen, many people had to get briefed on the way that the Passenger Vessel Services Act works. It's frequently referred to as the Jones Act, but it's similar, but this uh, Passenger Vessel Services Act actually just applies to cruise ships or passenger vessels. Uh, But all those people got briefed on it, including the president and all the staff around him, to know what that act does and how it has been helping Canada for many years. Uh, And they're now aware that, in fact, uh, that act can be changed. So that is a risk that... This topic is now on the table. 
risk to Canada, that is. Right, because there's some speculation or some thought that this could open it up for Americans, say, that don't have passports and that in the future, if they want to go on a cruise that starts, well, starts anywhere and comes up the West Coast, if you take those Canadian stops out, you take out the requirement that somebody has a passport, maybe that opens up the U.S. cruise industry to people who wouldn't have taken part in it before. Well, we will see what happens. And certainly logistically getting to uh, Seattle Airport can be a bit more simple than uh, getting into Vancouver. Because as you point out, you'd have to, if you're an American traveling uh, to get to a cruise ship going to Seattle, you don't have to go across an international border. Um, And by the way, just for your listeners' benefit, on average, about 80% of the people on a cruise ship going to Alaska are from the United States. So about 80% of the, the traffic on those ships are Americans. So it's possible that going to Seattle is a simpler process for the majority of the people traveling on the cruise ships than going to Vancouver and and having to cross an international border. But that said, uh, Vancouver gets good reviews from the travelers themselves. Uh, Once they're here, um, people people typically like it here, as we know. But uh, at at the moment, uh, they're not permitted to come here because of the, uh, the ban that the federal government imposed back in February and extended it for one year which then triggered the chain reaction uh, of legislative amendments that uh, Mr. Palmer talked about earlier. What would you like to see as far as more attention paid to this, or what would you like to see as as far as kind of protecting this industry or giving maybe even a more clear indication on, yes, it's not going to be happening this year. Do we have a clear indication on when cruise ships will be welcomed back to Canadian ports on the West Coast? No, we don't. And we don't know when they'd be welcome on the East Coast either. Uh, There's 17,000 jobs dependent in British Columbia on the cruise industry functioning here. Uh, In eastern Canada, including Quebec and the Maritime Provinces, there's another uh, anywhere from 12 to 13,000 jobs uh, there and across the country throughout the supply chain. Because, of course, the cruise ships, when they're provisioning here, they're, they're buying equipment and goods and food and wine and all kinds of materials. So that has a ripple effect across the country about 30,000 jobs in total. Um, What the cruise industry is going to be looking for is where are the goalposts? Let's start thinking about 2022 now uh, so that the cruise ship industry can actually get back in the water here. Otherwise, we might uh, effectively miss the ship again. Uh, do you think we, we put too much in, like you said, Vancouver and Victoria? There are two ports that people do enjoy. Uh, certainly people rave about uh, how beautiful they are, and, and they are significant parts of a lot of these cruises. Will that be enough, do you think, to get people interested and in pushing to come back? Uh, ultimately, the cruise lines have to operate safely and predictably to, to meet their schedule and so that people have confidence booking with them and operate safely. Um, there, there will be operational issues that they'll have to consider. Right now, uh, the industry is fully focused on getting back in the water and operating in North America. They have been operating in Europe and in certain parts of Asia uh, for quite a few months now, and that's even before vaccines were widely available with uh, very strict testing protocols on board and isolating protocols when cases are identified with COVID. Uh, and now that they're looking to get back into service in the United States, uh, they are most of the cruise lines are talking about a requirement that all passengers would have to be fully vaccinated as well as crew. So right now they are very focused on getting back into operation for later this summer. Uh, and, and that will be going to Alaska without stopping in British Columbia. 
uh, in terms of Canada and British Columbia, really now the topic is uh, what about next year? And I think it would be very helpful if provincial and federal regulators could determine what they're looking for. Where are the goalposts? What are the criteria? What would they like to see to make it acceptable? Um, the cruise lines are busy operationally now, as I said, getting back in the water. Uh, but it would be helpful for next year and for planning purposes so we can do this safely and predictably to know exactly what the targets are. Uh, is the reason, do you think, that we are not in the same position as the other cru- cruise lines and the ports that are opening up, uh, whether it's Europe or, or parts of the United States, uh, when we talk about people being fully vaccinated, is it because Canadians uh, at the end of this summer are only, uh, the, the bulk of Canadians are only going to have one dose, that we're simply not in the position that we can join the others in reopening this industry? I think part of what's happened is somewhat speculative, but it's my observation that We've been focused on where we've been and where we are and not so much thinking ahead of where we will be. And uh, that's maybe human nature, but uh, based on the trajectory of Canadians getting vaccinated and what our own Prime Minister has been saying since February, that we should all be vaccinated if we want to be by September, um, I think we need to start thinking how that that reality looks next year. Uh, And if people, especially on the ships themselves, are fully vaccinated, then we need to try to understand what the concern is because there'll be a higher percentage of people likely vaccinated coming off ships than there are walking down our streets uh, amongst our own residents. All right. Uh, Barry Penner, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the program. You're very welcome. Thank you. Right now, though, we want to talk about something else completely and talking about green space and the importance of green space, especially when it comes to children. And this has to do with a vote that is taking place at the Vancouver School Board. And it's going to be happening. Well, it is happening today. And it has to do with uh, some green space in South Vancouver. Heyman Meta is a parent and joining us on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. What is exa- what is at stake here as far as uh, what's concerning you and some of the other parents? Uh, well, the biggest thing at stake here is about a month ago, we received a survey saying that uh, we're going to be talking about disposing this land. And it took us a lot, a lot of us uh, by surprise. And what, what's at stake here is when you drive down Knight Street, Knight and 49th, you probably saw that school building go down. Anything in front of that school is now uh, planning to be uh, called a surplus by VSB. And what that means is that will let them uh, sell or lease the land. And so, you know, not only did we reduce the population, DSB categorically reduced the population of students from 500 to 400, so they can fit 400 students in the new building, which is at full capacity now. And now they're planning to sell that land, which is actually less land than even the Ministry of Education's recommended uh, standards, right? So it's 30% less land than we're supposed to have uh, if, they, if they take that land away. And so, you know, if you, Jill, if you go down Knight or, and 49, you'll see that there's no green space anywhere. And kids need this green space to be able to play around in, to, you know, live a nice, healthy life. Um, if you look at other schools, they have parks, community centers across the street. And so 
that's what VSBU was saying that, you know, compare this land size to other schools, you know, it's okay to just uh, sell this land. It's almost the same size as other schools. Well, if you look at um, the other schools, there's Sunset Community Center right next to it. Or um, in Queen Elizabeth, uh, there is Queen Elizabeth Park uh, right across the street from street from General Brock Elementary. Uh, we don't have anything like that. We have a park that's about nine or ten minute walk um, from our school. Um, and we, we feel like we need to keep this space uh, for the future of our children. Um, the building is also is at capacity. Uh, so they, they cannot have 401 students anymore in it. So, sorry, go ahead. Jill. Oh, I'm j- just to, to clarify too, just in case somebody isn't aware of the exact location we're talking about, this is the Sir Sanford Fleming Elementary School. And, and like you said, so it's on the East 49th side uh, between Knight Street and Lanark Street. That's that's the, the portion of land we're talking about, correct? That, that's correct. That's correct. And so, you know, if they take away this land, the most that VSB will be able to sell it for is maybe $7 million. Is that really worth it for the future of our kids? Our, you know, we have 400 kids in this, uh, in this school. A lot of this area that is remaining, they're going to put a soccer field in the middle, and then there's all this sloped area around it too where the kids will not be able to play. And so... In the original plans, there's basketball courts and all this area, but then they put a parking lot in front of the basketball courts. So we're like, why did they do that? Well, because anything where the basketball courts are going to be, they're going to sell it. And so that's where this vote comes in today. The board of trustees are going to vote today to mark this land as surplus. Uh, so when we presented at the facilities planning meeting on May 5th, um, four, four uh, trustees were in that meeting, and three of those trustees uh, voted to move forward with the motion to mark it as surplus. And so, you know, the parents would be very, very disheartened if this land does get marked as surplus. It's, it's not for the betterment of our community, for sure. And, and as it stands now, and I think people might hear this and say, well, aren't there, there must be parks, there must be other green spaces where kids at this school or in these neighborhoods can go to. And I know you've put forward uh, some graphics and some maps on this. And, it, and mm. it doesn't look, if you do compare this to some of other schools, uh, either on the east side or more so, I think, on the west side, uh, it does <laughs> look like this particular school site is quite far from, or farther from parks and green space than others. Absolutely. Like John Henderson Elementary has Sunset uh, Community Center and the entire park in front of it, right? General Brock has Queen Elizabeth Park and Hillcrest in front of it. We have a, a, a substation uh, across the street from us on the busy 9th Street and 49th Street. Now, if you look at the uh, green space on the west side, just drive down 49th and you'll see for yourself, you move from Victoria Fraserview area to Caresdale, and Caresdale literally has seven times more green space on the west side. You go on to Dunbar, it's 10, 15 times more green space. So, you know, it's, it's a remarkable difference between, and I hate to put it this way, between the east side and the west side. It's true here as well. 
The, the um, space itself yeah. that, that's in question, that's, mm-hmm. that's deemed possibly surplus and could be sold off, is it used as it is now by students? When the old building was there, so just some background, there wasn't a building that just came down. That's the old school. That entire back of the school was the playground for the kids, and the front of the school was a playground for the kids. So yes, absolutely, that whole land was dedicated for the betterment and for the play area for the kids. And now they've built this three, four-story building, um, new building, but it's at full capacity. And they, they, there is, if you look at the old building, even, even that one from 1906 was extended. So they kept adding more and more buildings to it as the population increased. Well, in our neighborhood, all these laneways are going up. All these basement suites are going up. There's all these um, duplexes that are allowed now. So the affordable living is actually going up. But VSB keeps um, managing the population of the school. They reduced the number of kindergarten classes from three to two. So they had a list of 59 kids in the wait list, which went to a lottery. And so only 40 out of the 59 kids got in, and a kid from across the street did not even get into the school. So now what they did is they took a 500 school, a student school, reduced it to 400, built a school that's designed for 400 students, okay? Mm-hmm. And now what they're saying is, oh, by the way, we did all this. This is great. Now let's just sell this land. Because the Minister of Education is not giving us enough money, we're at a budget shortfall, so why don't we raise $7 million by calling this land surplus? Honestly, Jill, what's $7 million going to do in the long term? Like 50 years down, this, down the road, when the population is going to need 600 students in this building, what are we going to do then? Where are we going to expand this building and does that mean that our kids will have even less space to play in? Well, how could it be expanded? Like you said, if we're at the point now where the old building is gone, they've built the new school, uh, if they do get rid of this land, I mean, it's not even really that close uh, to the school anyway. Where could they expand it uh, even if they, they wanted can. to? They can. I asked in the meeting, in the, uh, um, the meeting that VSB hosted, I said, can this building be built up? And they said, no, this building is at capacity. So they can't even add floors to it, for example, right? So they can only build outwards now. And so that means that whatever play area, that soccer field that we're going to have, will one day guaranteed be reduced. Because just like before, we're going to end up adding more uh, buildings uh, to to accommodate the population of the school. Now... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just, what would you like to see, uh, like you said, VSB, uh, they voted on it uh, certain ways getting to this point. What would you like to see them do at this point? Well, see, this is a bigger issue than just our school. There's a consulting company that they've brought in who has actually suggested there's another 10, a total of 10 schools that are going to go through this practice, right? And so what we're looking for is, is, for the Minister of Education to not put Vancouver School Board into this situation. We are all paying taxes. I built a brand new house two years ago. We all pay a lot of taxes. 
those taxes should go towards the education of our kids and the schools should get the money that they need to upgrade those buildings. Vancouver School Board is trying to seismically update these buildings and the Ministry of Education is only giving them enough money to just upgrade those schools rather than build new schools. So when you upgrade a school, the lifetime of that building is still very, very low. You need to build a brand new school so that it can last another 100 years. And so therefore, the Ministry of Education needs to give Vancouver School Board enough money so they're not put into a situation like this, where they're doing these short-term wins by selling off land, which they can never get back. All right. Well, we're going to continue following along with this and seeing what happens next in this. I know you're going to be doing that as well. Uh, Heyman Mata, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us up to date on this. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Joe, for bringing light to this. I appreciate it. Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. there is a uh, space uh, website that we've created. Uh, we have 750 pet- uh, signatures on the petition. It's savegreenspace.ca if, if, uh, if you guys are interested in learning more about this. All right. You've been listening to BC's Restart Plan. A lot of information just released about that four-stage plan. But businesses, obviously, were very eager to get this information. And we're going to take a look at what this means for the restaurant and food service industry in this province. Joining me to talk more about this is President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association, Ian Tostenson. Hey, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Jill. How are you? I'm very well. I imagine you have some uh, relieved and uh, optimistic people in your industry today. I know. You know what? Uh, Just honest, I mean, we had a briefing this morning and I hung up and I cried. I was so (laughs) happy for everybody because, you know, it's all week. It was like uh, someone phoned me this week and said, do you know what it's like to wake up and go, it's not sunny, my patio won't work, or it's so sunny I can't accommodate people or it's sunny or raining doesn't matter I can't even operate and the people today that I've talked to are just so grateful so much gratitude so excited and it's all part of the rebuild and I just wrote Dr. Henry and I said you know thank you for all the guidance it's been hard that you've given us but we are going to continue as an industry to stand beside you and get BC to where it is. I mean, she said today, uh, September 7th is my birthday, so I remember that she said, we can have concerts in September. And I'm thinking, for all those of us that miss live music, are you kidding me? So anyways, Joel, this is, this is, this is the, so the first part of this is what we thought on Friday was restaurants are now open for in-store dining. You can have six people at a table. And all the protocols are still in place, except for you don't have to be with a person in your household, which is the change. And then in June, we'll see, about June 15th, we'll see, uh, depending again on vaccination rates and all the rest of the data, we'll see uh, the hours extended to restaurants from the current 10 p.m. Uh, to 12 p.m., which is great. And then by July, we frankly, and this is just like so hard to even fathom, we will be operating in an environment that pretty much is uh, free of any restrictions that we've had. So we're going to go back to where we were pre-COVID, which is really hard to get your head around. For the you know the the the, the conversations that you and I have had over the last 15 months about restrictions and can'ts and won'ts and shouldn'ts, and we're now headed towards um, 
this new normal. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, so, and people might uh, have heard that and been, been like, what are you talking about? What's happening? Because it does seem, because it's not that far away. And again, this is all uh, if the numbers stay steady, hospitalizations stay steady. And I know in the question period, uh, Dr. Henry was asked, how can you be so sure? And she said, never say never, but it would have to be a very dramatic change in the numbers for us to go back on this. So how significant is it that as of June 15th, at the earliest, uh, that restaurants said that liquor will again be able to be served until midnight? Uh, many restaurants in downtown Vancouver, which I didn't realize until uh, that restriction got, was put in place, um, they do a lot of business sort of like 8, eight o'clock. Uh, I remember um, a restaurant owner say, you know what, at 8, eight o'clock I'm, I'm full with professional people that are coming to have dinner and they'll stay till you know, 10, 30, 11, 11, 30 nighttime and drink wine and enjoy themselves and they lost all that business. And so uh, that's really significant. And then the other one I think is is interesting is as we continue to emphasize being outside and patios are great, people will want to stay outside longer. And so sending them home at 10 o'clock when the weather's nice and all those different things, um, I think they're better off in a patio. They're safer in a patio. So that will accommodate that as well, too. I mean, I, I should address, you know, we're going to, I just, as I said, Dr. Henry, we're going to go slow. We're going to go methodical. If we have to pull back, we're going to pull back. This, this is not like the restaurant industry parties on, let's go for it. We have to do this methodically in in a safe way. And, you know, safety will always be the cornerstone of everything we do in this industry for a long time in the future. The last thing we want to do is trigger some event uh, or, or perform in a way that the public loses their trust, which they have high trust in us. And we've got an audience that maybe, Jill, of 30% of people in BC will probably be thinking what I'm saying right now is crazy talk. And this shouldn't be happening, and they're going to stay home until the all clear signal is way down the road. So we've got, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to ensure we keep public trust. Uh, looking at the timeline as well, and a lot is uh, going to be happening on your birthday, Ian, if this all goes as planned. Uh, September 7th is also where the restart plan has masks, will become a personal choice. Uh, there will be normal social contact, again, if people are sick to stay home. D- do you envision then that that if everything goes as planned, we could be walking into a restaurant on September 7th or pause at, the, at the earliest where there'll be no plexiglass, masks will be personal choice, and it will look like it did before the pandemic? Yeah, I think, it's, I think that'll happen in July. Um, Dr. Henry said she feels that by July, this was in the briefing we had, she feels that in July that, that all the restrictions in restaurants will, will likely be gone. I mean, we'll, we will make sure, like we, like we did, uh, masks, we were ahead of the curve on masks. And we were uh, slightly ahead of the government way back when, when we put in protocols. Our protocols were actually stiffer than what WorkSafe said. So, we're, you know, we, we'll, we weren't just going to pull it all down and say, let's just do it. We, I'm sure we'll have to be very respectful and mindful of people wanting to have some, uh, some distance and some privacy and masks. And so we'll, we'll make those adjustments that the, the public's safe. But, yeah, I, I, she said um, pretty much in July it will be back to no restrictions in restaurants. What is this? And, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, go ahead. No. Uh, just wondering with the restaurants, because we have heard as well, though, and, and you've talked about this with restaurants, uh, some still that aren't 100% sure they're even going to be able to stay open. Does this kind of give them that last little push and that it's not that much longer? Yeah, I think that um, those restaurants can go to their bankers or their backers today and say, here's a pathway. 
And it's so unlikely, you know, depending on how we're doing this. And it's so key that we get vaccinated that it, we're ever going to have to close again. That this certainty. And so they can maybe now invest in their patios and put more into the patios because they know they're going to be open with, without the threat of closure like we've had for 15 months and looking at negative numbers. And, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of people say, you know what, um, let's let's get back into this and go for it. Uh, I think a lot of people were giving up because even two weeks ago, th- th- it was bleak. We were, you know, you and I talked. I mean, it wasn't looking very good. The numbers were bad. And uh, everything pointed to a- an opening that wasn't going to happen so quick. I- I'm actually quite surprised how fast the numbers have decreased and how quickly we were able to open. I, I thought this is closer to June 1st, but, you know, it's it's today. And... People should go and phone their favorite restaurant and book a reservation for next week or tonight. Some restaurants may not be open yet, and we've got to give them some time here to, to resupply. Um, we are going to have a huge problem with labor. So anybody listening that knows somebody that's looking for a part-time job or someone's kid that wants to do something as they go back to university, you know, get a hold of your favorite restaurant. Let them know that you just, just phone them up and say, look, I'm available to work. There's going to be lots of opportunity And I think the opportunity for careers is going to be uh, down the road for restaurants is going to change. I think restaurants now will start to look to to hire people and to keep them. And they've got the the ability now to say, Jill, I can provide you a job and a secure job. And we likely are not going to have to close again. And that's a that's a huge message to to uh, to people. Uh, it is indeed. Uh, again, a lot of information. Uh, Ian, thanks so much for joining us, uh, for bringing uh, people up to date on this. Like you said, a good time. If people can, uh, go out there, make that reservation, see how their restaurants, uh, local restaurants are doing. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again, but great to talk to you today on such a per- uh, positive note. Well, we've got a long way to go, Jill. And, but you know, thank you because you've always sh- shone such a wonderful light on the industry and allowing us to get the word out. And I really, t- truly appreciate it. And thank you on behalf of all of the restaurants in this province for what you've done too. All right. Thank you as well. Ian, I'll let you go there. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, Jill. We are continuing to talk about the restart plan, the reopening plan, a lot of information in four phases, the first phase starting today. And these are the earliest dates of reopening and lifting those restrictions. More coming June 15th, July 1st and September 7th. And if all goes according to plan, September 7th is when things will look pretty normal. Things will be back looking the way they did, at least in this province, looking the way they did before the pandemic. Let's bring in Brad Sumner, lead pastor at the Jericho Ridge Community Church. He's joining us now to talk about religious gatherings. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, happy to be with you again, Jill. Well, this certainly has been one of the big questions, and I know there's been a lot of disagreements. There's been legal action, court cases, what have you. Uh, what are your thoughts about the fact that outdoors, so these are uh, nothing really as of today, but June 15th could be the earliest where we're seeing um, outdoor personal gatherings and then those indoor seated organized gatherings of up to 50 people. 
Yes, we are excited. First of all, that as a whole, it seems like uh, we're headed in the right direction with obviously vaccination and, and case counts. And so those have been key indicators in the province making decisions with respect to congregating in any form, including religious gatherings. So we're hopeful. Um, I think the big question that we're waiting on at our end is the question about singing. And so that guidance is still coming on that. And so the capacity as to whether or not it's safe to sing indoors will be a big, I think, feature for a lot of churches and religious organizations making decisions. Right. So have you had any guidance on that or was that included in this restart plan? That is, uh, they're saying nothing yet about it. So we're hoping for some additional guidance uh, that would be science-based and that could give us a little bit of additional clarity on that. Um, I know, for example, what we planned for the summer is just not knowing what the possibilities of the restart plan look like. We said, listen, it seems from all of the science and the indicators that the uh, obviously outdoor is safer than indoor, but outdoor religious services uh, are challenging to mount in terms of the overall logistics of them, um, especially if you have a wide range of, of uh, ages engaged and population base. So for us, we said we would uh, be wanting to mount a couple of those in the summer uh, if singing was permitted and we could do them safely with 50 people or so um, on the long weekend. So that was sort of our plan. We'll still wait for some guidance around the singing piece. And then if we're allowed to do that indoors, that would be wonderful and helpful for us. Uh, but we don't want to rush ahead uh, of, of where the guidance is, obviously. Uh, that's been our commitment from the start, and we'll maintain committed to that. Right, and it even says in the slide that specifically talks about that, that June 15th, it says indoor seated organized gatherings of up to 50 people, sector consultations on the next steps on indoor and outdoor gatherings. Do you see it going ahead? Would, would they still go ahead if the guideline was you can have up to 50 people gathering in a church, but you can't sing? I think each religious group would make its own decision then and figure out how important the balance there is sort of the, the importance of the religious ritual and the connectivity that that brings and then the social connection and spiritual connection that happens when you can be in the same place uh, with other people. And so everybody will probably make their own decisions on that. Um, and and it'll, it'll probably also be based on the size of the church because uh, there, there are some churches for whom even if they mounted multiple gatherings of 50, they might not be able to reach effectively as many people as as they just stayed in a digital format as they are doing currently. So it'll probably vary a lot, I'd say. Do you think it will also vary uh, church to church or gathering to gathering as far as, uh, and even Dr. Henry mentioned this, that these are the guidelines, but it's still going to be up to people who maybe have compromised immune systems who are more susceptible, more vulnerable. Uh, Do you think then some churches or church settings will still have safety protocols, whether it's plexiglass, whether it's wearing masks, even past the point where they might be recommended? Yeah, I think it, it's really important to consider the specifics within each situation. So some churches, for example, are in very old buildings where ventilation is quite poor. And so I think they're going to want to, in that situation, they're going to want to use very individual site-specific guidance, which is, of course, difficult for the PHO to provide sector-wide. Um, whereas in our setting, we have a brand new or renovated building, which has an incredibly effective filtration and HVAC system. And so I think each 
church will want to make its own decisions on that underneath the guidance of the PHO. And then obviously individuals within that need to be assessing, is this the wisest course of action for me, given all, whether it's their underlying health concerns or their home uh, or, or family situations. And so it'll still, I think we'll still have this sort of balancing act between all of those things uh, through the next couple of months. And, and that's not just a religious thing. I think that applies across restaurant industries and in many other places. And so I think we're, we're optimistic, uh, but we don't want to be rushing. Have you seen a push within church communities as far as getting the information out to people about getting vaccinated and trying to, to boost vaccination rates? Yeah, certainly that's, uh, I've seen that um, in the Sikh community and in uh, some other religious settings. I think uh, that there, there, it depends on what level of um, authority people see religious figures within their particular tradition. And so some are very deferential uh, towards authority figures and towards religious sources of information, and, and they're quite trusting uh, of that. And so that's wise, and the, and the Provincial Health Office and, and Fraser Health here in our setting have, have um, when wise, partnered with those organizations uh, to get the information out. And I think there's, there's sort of an odd um, backlash sometimes that happens within religious communities uh, for people that um, are, have varying positions on vaccination. And so sometimes religious leaders are a little bit quieter because they, they don't want to be seen as being a health expert when really their field of expertise Expertises within religion, and so some some have been silent for that reason, um, and others probably just don't want to wade into controversy. <laughs> right, which makes sense. I think people can understand that. Uh, you, you mentioned certain kind of outdoor uh, events as well, maybe on long weekends and through the summer when it's easier to do that weather-wise. Do you think that there will be an increase as we ease into these lifting of the restrictions? Do you think that we will see more of that? I think so, because, uh, of course, now that we're into some nicer weather, uh, that certainly makes planning a little bit easier, uh, especially in our summers here in, in BC, a little bit more predictable um, than it did, say, in, in the winter months. So I anticipate that there'll be groups that will go ahead and, and move in that direction, depending on their scenario. Um, there's a number of religious communities that don't have permanent homes, and so they, for example, rent spaces in schools or other venues. And so for them, they may want to execute on some of those opportunities because those some of those venues where they would normally meet might be closed and are not open to renting to them until we're back fully at into the restart plan in the, in the fall. When we look at this now and when we can see uh, the place where things will get back to looking normal and if all goes according to this plan that looks like it'll be early September, what do you think we will take away from this in that there has been such a divide? Like I mentioned, there have been some churches that have gone to court that have defied the orders that have uh, have been very vocal about this. There have been others that have been fine with it saying you can worship anywhere. We understand the, the reasoning for this. What do you think the takeaway is going to be when we look specifically specifically at religious gatherings? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the one, uh, the one thing that I've repeatedly said to our people is, and it may not be a takeaway about religious gatherings, but it may be a takeaway about religious people or persons who have religious convictions. And I've said to our people, 
you, you want to think carefully about how you want to be remembered two years or 12 years from now uh, as to how you've carried yourself through this time um, when we've had a lot of heightened emotions, we've had a lot of sort of uh, disagreements that come from various different places, but um, the, the continuous uh, call that I've been putting out to our people is just to say you want to be remembered as someone who loved other people well and loved your neighbors well. You want to be remembered as a person who was reasonable. You want to be remembered as a person you know who carried yourself in a way uh, that that people came to respect and admire you through this time. And where you've made choices and sometimes religious people have that have eroded some of those things, I think that the general public takes away from that a sense of lost confidence and so I'd hope that that would that that it would only be true or apply for a very small minority of religious groups or people who have trended in that direction and that the rest of uh, us wouldn't be painted with that negative brush all right uh, Brad Sumner we'll leave it there for today thanks so much for joining us appreciate your time always a pleasure to be with you all right coming up this half hour we're going to talk a little bit more about the restart plan for bc we've been talking about that at length the four-tiered plan starting today and the earliest dates of things reopening june 15th july 1st and september 7th the september 7th date looking at uh, normal social contact uh, Canadian recreational travel, increased capacity at large gatherings, things like concerts. But again, that's September 7th, and that is based on the numbers staying low and everything playing out as it's intended, as it's laid out in this plan. So we're going to talk more about what that means as far as vaccine rollout as well. Uh, Some concerns about moving this quickly, and could the plan change? Before we do that, though, we want to take a short break from talking about COVID-19 because there's a big event happening. And my guess is there are going to be a lot of people, some people at least, who are going to drag themselves out of bed to see this because living on the West Coast, we have a bit of a perk when it comes to seeing a total lunar eclipse. We are poised in the best position one of the best positions to see this. Our show contributor, John Jang, has been looking into this and has everything we need to know about how to see it, the very best in all its glory. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. Every now and then, the universe likes to remind us that we're all just made up of stardust. And tonight, or rather very early tomorrow morning, we'll be treated to another such an event with a total lunar eclipse. And to learn more about what this all means, we are now joined by Dr. Mubdi Rahman, an astronomer with Sidrat Research. And Dr. Rahman, what is a total lunar eclipse and what is the significance of an event like this? So total eclipses in general are amazing and impressive to see. So with this lunar eclipse, what that means is that the Earth's shadow will be blocking out all the light that would normally be hitting the moon. Uh, so instead of that light that hits, the, you know, that's coming from the sun, that hits the moon, bounces off of it, and hits the Earth, and that's what we see as a full moon, we would be seeing basically darkness descend on the moon for a couple hours as it, uh, you know, as, as the shadow gets covered, and then as the moon moves and slightly gets uncovered by the shadow, that's when you see the light. And what you're seeing there is the Earth's shadow, essentially. And so you can actually even see the edge of the Earth. That's what we're seeing on the moon, projected on the moon. Oh, wow. Okay. So that is kind of interesting to know. Not everyone knows so much about the lunar eclipse. So it seems people generally know more about the solar eclipse. Isn't that kind of odd? 
It is, especially given that lunar eclipses tend to actually be a lot more common. So solar eclipses, yes, they are incredible. They are absolutely phenomenal to watch, but they're super rare because the shadow of what a solar eclipse is, is the shadow of the moon catching the Earth. And the moon is much smaller, so the shadow is going to be much smaller. Whereas with uh, a lunar eclipse, the Earth's shadow is much larger, so it's more likely that the moon will be caught in it. So we're actually a lot more likely to see a total eclipse at any given time, uh, a total eclipse of the lunar variety, than a solar eclipse. Interesting. And for those that are curious and plan to stay up and, and get a, a, a you know an actual viewing of this total lunar eclipse, is there anything that they need to do uh, or any equipment that they need to get in preparation for this? Or is this something that you can look pretty easily just outside your window? So uh, the, very much the latter. Uh, this is the kind of thing that you can actually just stare up at the sky and take a look at the moon. The moon is incredibly bright. It's uh, There's a lot of detail that you can just pick out with your eye. Uh, one thing I would suggest is you know, getting out of, away from street lights will definitely make the view a little clearer. Um, but if you happen to have a pair of binoculars, that's always great. One of the cool things that you can actually take a look at if you see uh, see it at the you know with a pair of binoculars or even with a telescope is you can actually see the shadow falling over craters and how that grows over time. Uh, and so that's certainly not you know not necessary to appreciate the eclipse itself. But if you do you know and any old pair of binoculars, they don't have to be anything special. Uh, but yeah. Just, giving them a point over at the moon. And scientifically speaking, you know, what is the significance of some of the nicknames that such events uh, sort of garner for themselves? Like, I read that maybe this is also called a blood moon, if I'm not mistaken. Is is that something accurate there? Or is that just a playful sort of nickname that some people have created for it? So a lot of these are actually cultural because, you know, the moon has been used for literally millennia for timekeeping, right? And so, so much of this, uh, you know, comes down to uh, how did people keep track of months and years and seasons? So the names, a lot of these names tend to be uh, related to, uh, tend to be related uh, to, you know, different cultures and how they view the moon uh, at this, uh, you know, at this particular particular time during this particular season. Uh, there is a, you know, the whole blood moon thing is actually kind of fun in this particular case uh, because, you know, basically a lot of the, you know, the earth, you know, the way that the moon is going to be aligned, a lot of the light that's coming from the sun is actually going to be filtered through the atmosphere of the earth. And so we know that blue light scatters in the atmosphere. That's what makes the sky blue. Mm. What that means is all the red light from the sun is actually going to be able to go through the atmosphere, and that's what will hit the hit the moon. So for a period of it, it'll look a little red, and that is because of our atmosphere doing a little bit of the filtering and capturing some of that blue light. Wonderful. And do we know what time the best viewing opportunities would be for individuals? Uh, so it's going to start actually pretty early in the morning, I believe. Um, when I'm just double-checking. So I believe it's going to be at around 7 or 8 a.m. Eastern. Uh, so that's a little earlier for those on the Pacific side of it, but it'll be basically overnight. But the partial eclipse will be visible from about sort of 6 a.m. Eastern. So that's, I believe, 3 a.m. Pacific all the way to sort of um, 9-ish or so Eastern to 6 Pacific. 
Fair so enough. get up early. <laughs> yeah, it's either you stay up really, really late or you get up really, really early. But um... I, I'm probably a stay up late kind of guy myself. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> exactly. And then you get a nice restful sleep. Even if it's not too long, at least you get to say, well, I went to bed after seeing something pretty wonderful that the galaxy yeah. is treating us to. Uh, Dr. Rama, thank you so much for giving us some time here and some uh, fun explanations on what we're going to be treated to tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And a reminder that an eclipse like this also plays a significant role in the world of astrology. Eric Chapman will cover that element later today at around 545 on The Linda Steele Show.